Thank you, worship band and Good Morning Cornerstone Church. Please be seated. Welcome to those of you who are not in the building. I don't know if you're seated or not, but glad you're with us here today. And uh, today, my brothers and sisters, it's kind of a momentous day in our church's life because today we begin some exposition and some sermon time in Ephesians chapter 4. How many like Ephesians 4? Is that all right? Yeah, we actually made it there. So... Let me read from some of Ephesians 4. But before I do that, you see the sermon series slide up there? Let me explain that a little bit to you. Thank you. Um, So what you have there is, uh, in the bottom, you see a scale. The old-fashioned kind that had a plate on this side and a plate hanging on that side. And you had to put five pounds on one side and five pounds of grain on the other side, and it will be balanced. You have a scale. And the reason you have a scale there is because one of the key ideas in Ephesians 4, and really 5 and 6, is this thing that we're going to see introduced in our verses today, that we are to walk worthy. The word worthy is axios. It's a Greek word that means equal in weight. So you take all that God in Christ has done for you and you put that on one plate and you take your response and the way you walk as a Christian in Jesus Christ and you put your walk on the other plate and they're to be worthy, to be worthy. You also notice on the left, your left of the picture, there are three different size blocks over there. They are chapters one, two, and three. And on the right, that's chapter four. We're in that chapter. Five and six are not in view yet. They're waiting for us. So thanks to Gabby, office at, just reminding you, office at Cornerstone to Gabby. She uh, prepared that artwork for us. Let's read the first seven verses. I'll read. You follow along uh, looking at the screen or at your Bible that you brought with you. This is God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, I say this is God's word. Let's respond to it in prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us to this, th- this room today, to this opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters and friends, to open our hearts to you, to offer them up to you. We have loved worshiping you, God our Father, in the name of God the Son, in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray that now as we come to, to really focus on your word and what it means And what we should do in response to it, we simply pray, Lord, have your way with us. Shape us, mold us, change us, speak into our souls and fashion us much more deeply that we would be like Jesus Christ. Some people in the room, some with us online, perhaps are not followers of Christ. We pray that you might also use these words of yours, this portion of Scripture, to lead them to saving faith in you, Lord Jesus. 
We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Slide man, give us the next slide. Ephesians, that's it. Thank you. So there it is. I'm not going to read it again. But I want you to know, Paul begins with, I therefore. So therefore, obviously, points back to what he's already said, maybe what he had just said at the end of chapter 3. But I'm going to go with all of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, all of chapter 3. He's laid it down. He's established it. He's taught us all this amazing Christian doctrine. And now we're responding to that doctrine. And he says, therefore, here's what happens next. Therefore, here's what you do. Now, some of you will know, but all of you need to know, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are mainly doctrine. They're about what we are to believe, the things God wants us to know and believe. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about practice. They're doctrine too, really. They're the doctrine of what to do. But they're practice. They're focused on how do we walk. He's going to use that word here. How do we walk? How do we follow Jesus Christ? So you have the first three chapters, orthodoxy, the last three chapters, orthopraxy. The first three, what you believe. The last three, what you do. So get ready. This is now going to be about what we do. So you've had it real easy in one, two, and three. You can just sit there and say, yes, I believe that and I love it. Yes, I believe that. It's scrumptious to my soul. Yes, I believe that. You've been able to do that because there's only been one imperative there's only been one do this in the first three chapters. There's going to be a pile of them in the last three chapters. And now we're coming to all the, so do this, so don't do that, so change this in your life. This is where you might say Paul leaves off preaching and he gets to meddling. So he does some meddling and I'm going to do some meddling. You have to like that. You can't be one of those Christians, well, I like doctrine. Just give me doctrine. All right, we want to give you doctrine, but we also need to do some meddling. Don't want you to be like the father of a young man I knew once. So when I was 26, I became the pastor at Fort Howard Community Church. You know where Fort Howard, Maryland is? Go to Essex, go to Dundalk, keep on going. It's down there, sticking out in the Chesapeake Bay on a little narrow peninsula, and I was their pastor and one of the guys that came to faith in Christ was a young man. I don't know what he was, 16, 18, whatever. And he came to faith in Christ, and we baptized him. His name was David. And David had lived a very evil life. I don't know how to put it bluntly other than that. He had lived a very evil life. So I started meeting with him once a week. We'd sit on a picnic bench. It was summertime, and we'd talk about how he's got to change and what can help him change and what he's going to do. And he was really working on it. And sometimes he'd get dragged back into things and other times he wouldn't. And he was getting stronger and stronger in Christ. And then his father noticed that he wasn't going to the parties anymore. And his dad liked him going to parties. You're not going to parties. It's Friday night. You're sitting home. Are you all right? What's wrong with you? How come you're not going to parties anymore? And David said to his father, because I've become a follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't want the party thing anymore. I want to be the Christian thing. And here's what his dad said to him. Look, I'm fine with you believing in God and all, but when it starts to affect your life, that's gone too far. No, you don't want to be like David's dad. You want to be like, please, Lord, affect my life. Please shape me, mold me, conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. So you, in anticipation of now we as a church, we're coming into Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, and it's do, 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 do. It's imperative, imperative, imperative. It's command, it's exhortation. You ought to be like, oh, Lord, please have dealings with me in this time. So get ready. We're going to leave off preaching and 
start to meddling. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Second time he has said that in Ephesians. First one is Ephesians 3.1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's just making a little point while we're passing, so I'll note it while we're passing. Paul was a prisoner of Rome. Paul was a prisoner of, I believe it would have been Nero. But Paul says, no, I'm not really a prisoner of Rome, and I'm not really a prisoner of Nero, because neither one of them is in charge in my life. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner for the Lord, because he's the one who's in charge. He has me where I am. Just remember that for where you are. God is sovereign. He had Paul in prison, not a nice place, for good reasons. Paul rejoiced in it, bowed, submitted to it. So, little thing there, but let's note it as we go. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and then what's the next word? Urge. I don't like that word. I don't like that translation of the Greek word, which is parakaleo. Most of the time, we translate that either comfort or exhort. That's the exhort word. Why didn't they make it exhort here in the ESV? Because they wanted to sell a new translation, so it had to be different from all the other ones that say exhort. So they said urge. There's cynical Steve in Bible translations. Don't get me started. But it's the word parakaleo. And context determines, does it mean comfort or exhort? And the context here definitely means exhort. So Paul's saying, I'm starting the exhorting part of, my, of my, my sermon here, the exhorting part of my book of the Bible. I'm going to urge you now. I'm going to try to get you to do things. Very common word in the Greek New Testament, to urge. Urging is something you need in your spiritual life. You need it so badly that the Lord intends other believers to urge you, and the Lord intends your pastors to urge you. Speaking of other believers to urge you, he even, he's even given some of them, some of you sitting here in this room right now, the head of the church has given you the spiritual gift of urging, the spiritual gift of parakaleo, the spiritual gift of exhorting, and your big job in the body of Christ is to move believers from where they are to where they're supposed to be according to God's word. So you want to exhort and exhort and exhort. And you're like, why are they always exhorting me? Because that's what the Lord gave them, a gift to be. So receive it as from the Lord. And it's not just some of you have the gift, but all pastors are required to do exhorting. Um, I don't have this verse up for you, but 1 Timothy 4.13. Timothy, you're to give yourself to reading to exhortation, and to doctrine. There's a pattern for all New Covenant, New Testament pastors. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to give myself to reading the text of God's Word, to teaching the doctrine from the text of God's Word, and then to making applications, exhortation from God's Word. That's a well-rounded ministry. You want all of that. You want to be exhorted a lot. We're not to leave the applications to like well, let me do it this way. The guy gets to the end of his sermon. He hasn't made one practical application. He hasn't urged you or exhorted you about one thing. But in his closing prayer, he makes up for it in this way. He says, now may the Holy Spirit apply this word to our hearts. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, why didn't you apply that word to our hearts? Because that's what we're paying you to do. That's what pastors are supposed to do. 
We're not just supposed to be always be teaching. In fact, I'll just squeeze in right here. It's in my sermon somewhere. I'll do it here. So good friend of mine's a pastor. I don't hear him much. I've heard him a few times. I liked it. One of his good men in his church said to me recently, I really like his preaching because he never makes applications. And I thought, oh, really? Never makes applications. Hmm, I filed that one away. We're supposed to make a lot of applications to your life. So I hope you're saying, all right, preacher, lay it on me. Don't hold back. Don't pull any punches. Make lots and lots of applications. I know that this is the point in preaching Ephesians where I start getting in trouble with people, however. Right? Because you start making applications, somebody gets, gets their toes stepped on, and they say, ouch. All right. We'll do it. There are also people, speaking of urging and exhorting, speaking of parakaleo, there are people so characterized by it, they get a nickname. Acts 4.36, I have this verse for you. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They're like, he came out of the womb, an encourager. His dad is encouragement, and he's the son, and it's just like his dad, something like that. There's this guy in our church named Son of Encouragement. We need sons of encouragement, sons of exhortation, sons of exhorting in the church. I speak to you pastors of Cornerstone Church. No small part of your job is to notice deficiencies in the lives of our people and to lovingly, graciously step in and teach and exhort. That's some of what the Spirit of God expects us to do. You need to love it. You need to say, I'm thankful I have pastors who will take the risk. It's risky. It's always risky. Thankful I have pastors who will take the risk and love me and step into my life and maybe step on my toes and maybe exhort. We try to do it graciously. We're supposed to do it gently, the Bible tells us. Sometimes it has to be more firm. Then you leave the exhort verb and you go to the admonish. Sometimes it has to be more firm, then you leave the admonish verb and you go to rebuke. But that ought to be pretty rare. Like the pastor who's always rebuking, yeah, not so much, right? But, but there ought to be a lot of exhorting. So you want that in your church, Exhortation Bible Church. I think I have seen a church, by the way, named Oxios, equal in weight, worthy. All right, so Paul says, let's go back to that verse again, please, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, and now to what? First he gives us a very broad urging, then he narrows in on some specifics. We're going to look at the broad and then get to a few specifics. What's the very broad? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You just read my chapters 1 and 2 and 3, didn't you? They were the calling. All those great things God has done for you in Christ. And now we're turning to you and your walk. It's the Greek word peri, which means around, peripateo, the way you walk around, the way you live your life, the ways you conduct yourself, the things that you do. And he says, now I, I want to urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, to walk, to walk in a manner worthy to me, the best commentary on Ephesians, and a lot of people say this, is the one I'm reading through by Honer. And he, he writes, quote, Ephesians contains more specific practical applications for daily life than any other New Testament book. 
Wow. Paul uses this word walk 32 times in his epistles. Five of them are in Ephesians. He's concerned about, and so God, who's really using Paul's pen to speak to you, is concerned about your walk, your walk, your walk, your walk. Say, I'm not into the walk. I'm into doctrine. Yeah, good. Be into doctrine. You also need to be into your walk. How do you live? It ought to really affect the way you live. So there's a lot in the Bible about your walk. At the risk of, I shouldn't say this. At the risk, no, it's not what you think. At the risk of boring you. See, as soon as I say that, now you're prepared to be bored. (laughs) So that was a pulpit mistake. But all right, I said it. At the risk of boring you, you're never going to be bored with God's word, right? All right, thank you. Let me show you some other passages that have this name, this word walk in them, just so we get the idea. This is a big thing in the Christian life, your walk. Back in Ephesians 2.3, he mentioned your former walk. Let's look at it. Among whom we all once lived. The word lived is this peripateo, same word, walked. Well, what was that walk? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's how you walked. But now you're to have a worthy walk. He speaks about our walk again in Ephesians 2.10, what it is to be now. Here it is. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's how you used to walk before Christ, and here's what God has prepared and what he's called you to and how you're to walk now that you're in Christ. And they're two very different walks. Christians live very differently, think very differently, and especially love very different things than non-Christians. Let's go out of Ephesians. A few other passages that use the word walk. There are many. I'll just give you a few. I love this one. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Paul was reminding them of his personal ministry when he was there among them. We exhorted. There's that parakaleo verb. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. So in this case, axios, what's on the scale? God. (laughs) God's on one side of the scale, and he says, now you walk worthy of God. We're going to put your Christian walk on the other plate, and the, the plates need to stay level. Walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We're to walk worthy of God. Or again, let's see it pop up again in Galatians 5, 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, are you saved? Are you regenerated? Then you live by the Spirit. You're not in the flesh anymore. You're now in the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step. I'm sorry, grumpy Steve, unhappy with the ESV again. That keep in step is peripateo. It's walk. Let us also walk with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Those things aren't walking in the Spirit. He wants us to walk worthy of God. He wants us to walk in the Spirit of God. Your life ought to be characterized by the Spirit of God's presence in your life. Or again in Romans 4, Romans 6, 4, pardon me. 
we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here the walk is a walk in newness of life. I think very often, maybe always, I'm not sure, stand the baptizer. Who's John the Baptist to Stan the Baptist? Pastor Stan, when he baptizes people here, often when he gets them back up out of the water, he looks at them and says these words, walk in newness of life. Because just what you just did portrayed, you died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, so now walk in newness of life. This is our walk. So back to Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling. What's the calling? That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's all that great revelation about your redemption in Christ, how he predestinated you unto sonship, how he called you by the Holy Spirit so that you responded with faith and repentance and you believed on the Lord Jesus and you were saved and the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ has washed you of all your sins and transgressions. God in Christ has forgiven you of all of your sins. And Paul says, I, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of all that. It's like if you take everything I wrote, Paul's speaking here, everything I wrote in chapter 1, 2, 3, that's your calling, and we're going to put that on one side of the scale, and we're going to put your walk on the other side. Your walk better hadn't be like putting a feather on the other side. You put your little feather on, there's my walk, and the scale goes, boom. No, it's supposed to stay level. We put your walk on, and it's supposed to be a heavyweight walk. Not a featherweight walk. Don't be a featherweight Christian. Be, a, be in the heavyweight class. I want to be a heavyweight Christian. I want a worthy walk. I want to walk worthy of God. And I want to walk worthy of this great calling to which I have been called. So Paul's speaking to us about walking in a manner worthy of the calling, the calling to which we have been called. Now, some people are interested in doctrine, but not so much their walk. I've already animated this in this sermon, but I want to say some more about it. Other people are more interested in their walk, not so much in doctrine. I guess together we all make up the body of Christ, but we're all supposed to be interested in all. You need the doctrine and you need the walk. You need the walk and you need the doctrine. So you don't want to be one of those Christians who says, I don't care about doctrine. I'm just trying to follow the Lord. Well, you won't do that very well without the doctrine, right? You need them both. You don't want to emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. There have been times in my Christian life where I think I probably have done that. I'll tell you about one time. This is a self-deprecating story, and later in the sermon I'm going to tell you, don't always be self-deprecating, but here I am doing it. So I can remember back, I was probably, we were probably, Deb and I were probably 22, because I know we had a baby when this happened, and we had our first baby when we were 22. We had our second baby when we were 23, 13 months later. 
But we had at least the first baby. And I was in my Francis Schaeffer. You all know who he is? He was a great Christian apologist. I was in my Francis Schaeffer mode then. Like Francis Schaeffer had a goatee, I had a goatee. Francis Schaeffer wore knickers. We did a lot of backpacking. It's the only time I wore them. But I actually made some knickers. I cut off some corduroy pants and put some Velcro on, made some knickers. I felt like I'm Francis Schaeffer walking around in the Alps here. I was really into Francis Schaeffer. And I read all his stuff and reread it and reread it. We went to a thing. He was there. We met him. We met his wife, Edith. They signed some of our books. We were in the Francis Schaeffer mode, and pretty much any time he'd recommend a book, which he did, I'd be like, I got to read that book. I got to read that book. I got to read. So I'd read the book. See, I'm in like full-blown, heady, Francis Schaeffer theology slash philosophy mode. One of the books he recommended was Walter Kaufman's very excellent book titled Existentialism from Dostoevsky to Start, to Start. So... I'm sitting in kindergarten, you read that. So I'm, I'm sitting around our apartment all the time reading that book. And, you know, she's, she's got a baby, right? Her life has just dramatically changed. It's like family, help me. And I'm reading my book, wearing my knickers probably. And in her gentle, kind, and gracious way, she said to me one night, why are you always reading that? And why don't you read something about the family instead? I thought, all right, I'm getting a message here. I'm hearing you. A little less existentialism, a little more better husband, better father. All right, I'm getting it here. So you can kind of bend to one or the other. I'm really more into doctrine. I'm really more into practice. You can have periods in your life where you maybe go one way or the other, but you want to try and be balanced. You want both. It's going to change what you believe, your doctrine, but it's also going to change your walk, how you live, if you come to Jesus Christ. So you want to walk worthy of your calling. That's all that's in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. It's your calling in one sense the Bible presents your calling as the outward call of the gospel. You were blessed to hear the outward call of the gospel. And then there's also another calling in the New Testament, and I think this is the one Paul has in mind. Theologians call it the inward call or the effectual call. This is the Spirit of God coming into your soul to powerfully, effectually regenerate you, to grant you the gifts of faith and repentance so that you turn and believe on the Lord Jesus, and you got that by way of the effectual call or the inward call. I think that's what he's referring to here and always in his epistles. But be that as it may, you're to walk worthy of your calling. And I want to ask, do you feel like, come on now, be honest, fess up, do you feel like you're walking worthy of the calling? Would anybody watching you possibly say, wow, there's a believer who's really attempting by the grace of God to walk worthy of the calling with which they are called? Oh, Lord, Make me a believer who's seriously seeking by your grace to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Well, what exactly does Paul want me to do when I walk worthy? Well, the rest of the book. 
But let's see what he puts first. I'm really intrigued by what he puts first. I'm like, huh, look what he picked. Like, what would you have put first? All right, I just taught three chapters of doctrine. Now I'm going to get to meddle in their lives a little bit. What do you want to meddle with first? And you might have said, so y'all need to start really reading God's Word. That's a good thing. That's not Paul's first. It might be like, husbands do this and wives do that. That's a really good thing. That's in chapter 5. But that's not first. Notice what's first. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, What's next? With all humility. That's first. And gentleness. That's first. With patience. Here primarily with other members of the body of Christ. Why would I ever need that? With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing, wonderful that that's what Paul chose to put first? All this build up. I want you to walk. I want you to walk worthy. I want you to walk worthy of the calling. I want you to be axios. I want you to walk worthy of God. And here's what I really mean by that. I want you to learn humility, gentleness, patience, bearing. You know what that means, don't you? Do you understand bearing? It means Put up with other people. I want you, he's saying, I want you to get very good at putting up with other people. Why would I have to get good at that? Because they do things. Because we don't always get along. But let's go back to the word, just let's focus on the, the word there, humility. With all, to walk in a manner worthy of calling, with all humility, all Humility. Who wants to stand up and say, I now have all humility? No, we'd all know you don't. The word humility can also be translated lowliness. It's the, a Greek word. The noun is tapenos. This verb is tapenafrasune. Want to say that with me? Tapenafrasune comes from the the noun tapinos, which means low-lying, low, lowly, of low degree. This is people who are nothing culturally. This is people who are nobody culturally. With lowliness of mind, it's translated sometimes. And let let me let you in on something. This is really interesting. This word, tapinafrasune, is an extremely rare word in the Greek language, and it was absolutely hated by the Greeks and by the Romans. They hated the concept of lowliness, humility. What did they like instead? Well, the opposite, I'm Mr. Big, I'm important, I matter. Paul says, in your face, culture, In your face, Romans. In your face, Greeks. What we believers do is something you hate. You view it as groveling. We delight in it. I want you all to be lowly. 
Here's a footnote. Keep it for another day. I'm kind of dying to preach on this, so it's going to leak out a little bit right now. Um, notice that Paul does not attempt to rebrand the Christian faith and present it in ways that will be liked by his culture. He doesn't say, well, if I present the truth as it is in the Bible, my culture won't get that, so I'm going to rebrand it so that I'll appear more winsome and so that cultural elites would say, oh, we like him, he's reasonable and all that. And no, 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 Paul doesn't do any of that. If something's in their face, it's in their face. If they won't like something, they're not going to like this, but I'm going to go ahead and use that word, and I'm going to make it the very first thing I tell believers to have. The thing they hate is what we want you to have. That's not good for church growth. You're going to tell them to come in and I'll do something they hate. Yeah, we are. I like that. Now we know if they're really saved or not. Now if we know the Spirit of God's really turned them or not. So Paul doesn't try to rebrand things and soften things and file off the rough edges. He just blurts it out. And he says, the first thing I want you to have is this lowliness. He does the same thing in Romans. Twelve chapters of doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. I'm sorry, eleven. Then you get to chapter twelve and he turns to practice. Listen to Romans 12, 3 put it up. For by the grace given to me, that's being lowly. <laughs> he's modeling what he's about to tell us to do. By the grace given. Why am I telling you what to do? Because there was a grace that was given to me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, what? Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Huh. Why would Paul say that? Does anyone really need to hear that? Yes. We all do that. But to think with sober judgment. Huh, why would he say that? Because we're not very good at sober judgment. We judge ourselves to be way better than we are. Especially if you've got a little something that distinguishes you from other humans in some way, it'll puff your head up, you exalt yourself, you imagine you're amazing. We're very poor at sober judgment. What are our true gifts? What are our true talents? What opportunities should open up for us? But he says, I want you to think, not think of yourself more highly than you ought, we're all very good at that, but to think with sober judgment, we're not so good at that, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has assigned you a measure of faith is what Paul calls it. That means the gifts you have, the talents you have, the opportunities he opens up to you for service in the body of Christ. That's a measure of faith God has assigned you. You need to think soberly, here's what God has gifted me for. Here's where I ought to be in serving in the body of Christ. So Paul does that in Romans 12 as soon as he launches his walk section of the book, and he does it over here in Ephesians 4 as soon as he launches his walk section of the book. He wants us to walk with all humility. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, I forget which now, and I didn't look it up, um, says, if any man thinks he is not proud, he is proud indeed. 
He also notes for us, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. He also notes, and I'm paraphrasing now from memory on the spot, that um, we are never more like the devil than when we are acting out of pride. Because he acted out of pride when he fell. He acted out of pride when he opposed everything God loved. So, So humility. And then next week, we're going to see, and gentleness and patience and how to bear with one another in love. Those are coming next week. But let me take a minute when we're staying with humility and tell you, now this doesn't mean you need to develop a false humility where you're always saying, oh, you know, I'm nobody. I'm just a worm. Shucks, I don't really matter and all that. That's, that's not how you uh, betray humility. In fact, thinking of C.S. Lewis, he says again, um, it's not that the humble man speaks lowly of himself, it's more that he doesn't speak of himself, right? He's speaking of Christ, he's speaking of you, he's talking to you about your life. So lowliness doesn't mean, oh shucks, I'm nothing, and you're always talking about you, I'm, I'm horrible, I'm really very terrible, I'm so horrible, I'm so poor. Special message here for millennials, special message here for Gen Z, some of your ears just perked up, what? Uh, sociologists and psychologists tell us that you tend to practice self-demeaning speech way more than prior generations, way more. That you demean yourselves way more. By the way, they also tell us, and there have been many studies about this, uh, that when it comes to self-deprecating humor, um, what is the number? 63% of the humor used by women is self-disparaging comments compared to only 12% of humor used by males. So 63% of the humor that women do is, well, I, I, you spill your coffee on yourself, you go, just like me, a klutz. Men don't do that. What do men do in humor? humor? They make fun of other men. Right? There's lots of data on that. There are lots of studies on that. But just speaking to the idea of self-deprecating comments, constant self-deprecating humor, all right, that's not what humility is calling for. That's not how you fulfill this. Well, I'll just say even more often what a worm I am. No, just don't even talk about yourself. Ask them questions about themselves. Draw them out. Listen to what they have to say. They'll love you for it. They'll say, that was the best night I ever had because you let them do all the talking. You drew them out in the talking. So this is not you Gen Zers and you millennials and maybe ladies too, though I don't know if you can change that. I don't, I think it's deep in your DNA. So maybe you don't need to change that, but the answer to this in all humility is not, okay, then I'll grovel out loud more. No, the answer to this is don't imagine you're somebody special and love and serve other people. Okay? Yeah, that's what this is about. All right, I need to come to a close, so I actually have some applications of the applications. So we're supposed to walk in 
Walk a worthy walk. It's a walk in humility. So where do we need this? Well, three places I'm going to mention. We need it everywhere, but I'll mention three of them. We need this more in relationships. That's where Paul's going to take it. In humility and in, what does he say? Um, and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. He gets into one of the one another's of the Christian faith. He takes this straight to relationships. You need humility in your relationship with other people. We need that in the body of Christ so that when you do something offensive to me, I don't go, nobody does that to me. I'll make you pay for that. No, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Peter tells you, you just cover such things with a blanket of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. You forgive them even if they didn't ask 70 times 7. You're very good at absorbing things and maintaining the relationships in the body of Christ, and you can do that out of humility. We need this in our relationships. Lots of humility. I don't get all hurt like I'm somebody special. And I realize the thing they just did, I probably do it sometimes too. So I can cut them a lot of slack. We need this humility more in ministry. That's where Paul took it in Romans 12. He talks about humility. Don't think of yourself more highly. Think soberly. And then he goes into spiritual gifts. Don't imagine you have gifts for service in the body of Christ that you don't have. Like, is anybody here today? Probably not. Is anybody imagining you're, you're probably going to be the next Billy Graham? I got news for you. You're probably not going to be the next Billy Graham. Maybe God will, you know, do something amazing here. But I haven't seen anybody in our church. Have you, brother? Have, have you? Have you? Some other path? <laughs> She's pointing at her baby and saying him. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. May it be, Lord. But if you're sitting there thinking, I'm like, I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. I'm so gifted. I'm so talented. Why aren't they recognizing my, my amazing gifts? I'm so, such an amazing servant. Why aren't they raising me up? Maybe because you're not real good at self-observation. Maybe you're not real good at the think about yourself soberly. We need more humility in ministry. And we need more humility in positions that we might differ on in the body of Christ. And I'll just pick one. It's in the subject matter of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And there are different views. What's the Bible teaching us? And if you don't know what these mean, don't worry about it. Or come ask me. I'll be glad to explain more. But there's this position about the future that's called premillennial. And there's another one that's called amillennial. And there's another one that's called postmillennial. And here's what happened with me. This is bad form. You can start if you want. You feel funny just standing there? You can go ahead and start. All right. So, so well, I'm conscious. That there's someone standing over there. So the Bible college I went to and then the seminary I went to were pre-millennial. So they taught us premillennial. We read everybody premillennial. We had to pass tests premillennial. We were all premillennial. And the, the thing was kind of like, those guys who are on mill, they're sketchy. Don't trust them. And those guys who are post mill, they're also sketchy. Don't trust them. So I was like, I was pre-mill. Never read one of them. Never exposed myself to the teaching of one of them. Years later, when I finally did, I realized these people were serious about Christ too. And they have some good reasons for their position. And you know, they might be right. And that one might be right too. 
We need that kind of cognitive, doctrinal humility. I'm not saying, well, I'm not sure about the deity of Christ. Maybe there, no, 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 not that. But these matters on which Christians differ and they have equally high views of scripture, equally big hearts for Christ, but Christians differ on these things. We don't wanna be like lobbing rocks into the other camp. We wanna walk toward them in humility. So, humility, a worthy walk. Let's try to pray it in a little bit. Would you join me? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us, giving us this time in your holy word. May your Holy Spirit bring it deeply into our souls. Lord Jesus, would you make us a church? Would you make us a people characterized by a worthy walk? And would you increase the level of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another among us, right here in this church, right here in this flock? Would you grant us the grace of humility? May we also demonstrate it with our friends who don't know you. May it be winsome to them. May it be attractive to them. It make them want to hear more about our Christ who brings us low. So Father, have your way in us in these three chapters, four, five, and six. Have your way. Work mightily in us. Change what you want in us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.